Welcome to Conversations from Here with me, Dana Ziegler. These candid, unfettered, and unedited talks create connection and inspiration across the human story. These are the sharings of how we came to be ourselves, how we found our life's purpose, and how we made it from there to here. I speak with performers, artists, artisans, creators, innovators, entrepreneurs, and other remarkable people about what they do and how they came to do it. Also, the music you hear on this show is performed, as always, by Brad Watson. Today I speak with the powerful and insightful Dr. Sandra Del Castillo, depth psychologist, artist, storyteller, and teacher. We begin with her early life in Sacramento, California, as the daughter of an indigenous Mexican engineer-scholar father and an equally brilliant Scots-Irish mother. Post-college years traveling with her young family, working as a translator and interpreter in Mexico, helping out Benedictine nuns in service of liberation theology, delving into the vital importance of story in indigenous cultures, the history and practice of El Dia de los Muertos, plunging into the world of Carl Jung, coming to terms with the Spanish conquest of the New World, recognizing the destruction of one world and the creation of another, and how healing can arise from awareness. An expansive talk of vast scope. I hope you enjoy. Here's me and Sandra. And hello, my darling friend, Dr. Sandra Del Castillo. How are you? Great, Dana. Great to see you. Thanks so much for having me on. Thank you for doing this. And, and also, I want to say congratulations officially for your PhD in, so uh, in depth psychology. That is thrilling. <laughs> so good. Thank you. Yeah, it was a while. It took a while. So as you know, this, this podcast um, traces the origins of, of, of my guests <laughs> from there to here. And, and I want to, because, you know, I, I'm fascinated. We actually met uh, because, or actually the occasion of our meeting had to do with a mutual friend and a conversation about depth psychology. And then you just sort of walked onto the scene. <laughs> And, and it was just one of those sort of cosmic things. But, um, but I, I wanted to talk to you about where your origination, your, where you began and, and how you found your way eventually to depth psychology and all things Jungian. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I was born in Sacramento, California. My um, father is Mexican, Purépecha descent, so indigenous. And my mother is uh, Scotch-Irish American. And um, she, I was raised in a family that, of dreamers. We shared our dreams regularly. I'm one of five siblings. And almost every single morning at our breakfast table, it was, this was, <laughs> this was the, uh, the mantra. I had a weirdo dream of last night. Oh. <laughs> and so it would begin. And, and, and I realized in retrospect, as I grew, that that wasn't common. You know, that not everybody shared their dreams at the table, you know, their weirdo dreamos. And um, there was always that aspect uh, in our 
in our family, we had that going. My mother was very esoteric. Both of my parents, um, my father had Jung books in his library and Joseph Campbell and Power of Myth. <laughs> exactly, the Power of Myth, yes. And, and um, Carlos Castaneda. And so there was always that tendency towards, let's say the unconscious realms, the other realms, the spiritual realms. So that came naturally to me. It, was, it wasn't something that was out, you know, wasn't something that was sort of out left field. It was something that just, you know, um, after living 15 years in Mexico, when I came back, how I found Pacifica Graduate Institute. <laughs> I, I Googled, because I knew I needed my master's degree at that point. And I Googled Joseph Campbell graduate programs. <laughs> and there's actually, his archive is there in the Opus archives in, um, in Pacifica Graduate Institute. So that came up and I was absolutely fascinating, fascinated and I, you know, began looking into it and waited till the, the right program opened up for me and went for it. And it's so, I mean, how lucky were you not only to have, to be a part of a family who actually gathered at the table and ate together, but also talked about these really interesting, cool, esoteric things that, because my family was kind of like that too. So I relate to this, but most people don't. And so you had this, I mean, what a gift. What a gift yeah, to just start off that way. And, and, you know, even with my sisters to this day, we still, you know, they'll, they'll still call me up and say, God, I, I, I have to listen to this dream, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and then we'll tease each other, but no, wait a minute, preface that right. I had a weirdo dream last night. But you know, yeah, I mean, we still share the dreams. And now I, ha I bring a, a, a Jungian background to it. Mm -hmm. Just took it so much further. And we'll talk, we'll, we will talk more about Jung later and the archetypes and what it means. And so then people can be introduced to it because I, I was shocked to realize that not everybody know who Carl Jung was. Um, but, uh, but, but first I, I did want to talk about your, so your schooling, when you, when you went to college, where, where did you go? Well, you know, I, I went to, um, I went to Catholic elementary school, Catholic girls high school. And then I went to Berkeley. Mm -hmm. um, so I left Sacramento to go to Berkeley. And that was such a lovely experience for me because it was, you know, one of the, the most beautiful things about Sacramento are the rivers and the parks. But it's incredibly flat. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I, you know, it's like after a while I began to feel, you know, a, a sort of like a need for mountains and for the oceans. I mean, and those were close, but you know, it was like I wanted those around me. And so going to Berkeley was such a wonderful city and, and opening for a young woman, you know, and um, I was 19 and it was just, it was wonderful. It was a great exposure. And I was an English major. Mm -hmm. Literature. Because that, that was my next question as to what you studied when you, when you got to university. So English. Yeah, my mother was, uh, she was a big fan of English literature and always reciting poetry and Shakespeare and Edgar Allan Poe, The Raven. I mean, she would know these things. Or, or even Omar Khayyam, you know, the, um, the Rubiat. And yeah. So, I mean, so that aspect, you know, it's like I grew up with that also. And so that sort of a passion for literature took me to, uh, to Berkeley. Well, and, and the other thing about being an English major is it allows you, I mean, it's a wonderful foundational education because it teaches you how to think 
and how to express yourself. And it's kind of, you can adapt it in any way that you, that you see fit. Like some people would specialize in like 18th century French poetry <laughs> or something or so, or, well, that would be, uh, that would be a separate thing. But, <laughs> but when you're, but within the English language, you know, literature and poetry and, and all of that. And then did you, when, when was it that you went to Mexico? Cause you were there for 15 years. Right. You know, I, um, after, after Berkeley, I, um, I sort of broke from my family's expectations and, um, did, you know, met this sort of handsome young Dutch hippie on a train and <laughs> took off with him. And, um, you know, did we, we, you know, it was much to my parents' dismay, but I, um, he and I hitchhiked up and down the West Coast in the um, late 70s, up and down, um, let's say from the Bay Area to um, up to Washington and hung out a lot in, in the um, Oregon area. And, um, and then I moved to uh, Holland with him. And um, I was in Holland for a year. And that's actually where I had my, um, my first baby. Melissa was born there. And they had a home birth. And it was one of the reasons that I, I did want to go and have that experience. It's amazing there. Um, they have, because the government pays for all medical, you know, dental and acupuncture, everything is paid for. And the, um, they have what they call a Kramfersorster, which is sort of like means a maternity sister. So the government, you know, you, I think we pay $10 a day, but the government pays her to come into your home especially for first-time mothers, but everybody gets it, to come into your home after the baby's born and um, care for you and the baby. And if it's your first baby, they teach you how to bathe the baby, nurse the baby, change the diapers. You know, it's amazing care that the woman is given. It's just amazing. And I have, I, you know, I have three children and they were all born at home, but only the first one was born in Holland. But what it taught me was what an organic and natural experience was. Of course, I was young. You know, I was in my early 20s. Um, when Melissa was born, I wasn't quite 24. And so I was strong and healthy. And, um, but it was such an organic experience that I would have never wanted to be in a hospital for that. I mean, I know some women have to be, but I didn't. And I was really happy that I didn't. Um, so I was in, so we were there for a year and then I moved back to California and we moved to Santa Cruz. And um, that's where my, se my second child was born. My son was born in Santa Cruz. And so we sort of did a, a whole hippie circuit. We moved from Santa Cruz to Southern Oregon. Uh, we lived in uh, 80 acres in, in Trillium. It was a, a community in Southern Oregon up in the mountains in, in, um, outside of Ashland. Mm -hmm. Just exquisite, exquisite. We, that group, we would host what was called the Southern Oregon uh, Healing Gathering. And um, actually, it was in Santa Cruz when I began doing women's rituals. And so, um, in, in the Southern Oregon Healing um, Community, I would also do, it was called Awakening the Goddess, and I would do the dawn ceremonies and the teepee. It was a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. It was good. And then I moved, we moved closer to Ashland. My, my third daughter was born. 
but that was back. We moved back to California and we were living in Sonoma County mm-hmm. outside of Guerneville. And we went to the California School of Herbal Studies. That was Rosemary Gladstar's school, which was just fabulous on 50 acres. And so I learned how to make the, my tinctures and salves. And I still make my salves to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was, there's salves for everything, you know, baby's rash and, mm-hmm. and so that it was, I loved that period. And then, then it was back to Oregon. And at that point, um, we, we bought a home and five acres and came with a Christmas tree farm. <laughs> it was beautiful. It was absolutely wonderful. And what was, we, was, we were on the outskirts of talent. And it was, it was devastating to hear that the, the little town of talent, we weren't close to the town because we were on the outskirts, but the little town of talent burned down this summer. Mm, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Talent and Phoenix. That was just, you know, I, when I heard that, I was just stunned. I thought, Jesus, did, how far did that go? I mean, did that, but it, it, it stayed in the towns. It just went down the, um, the highway. Mm-hmm. Absolutely horrifying. Such a gorgeous area. Yeah, so much has been devastated up there. And um, I have friends actually now who are in uh, Santa Rosa who are kind of on pins and needles about, do we need to go? Do we stay? Do we, you know, and it's just been awful for them this, especially this year. And then a couple of years before when the fires were really bad before, you know, so it's been devastating. So, so where you, where you were at that time, that's, probably gone then, huh? Well, no, I mean, it seems like because we were on the outskirts closer to the, um, the forested area, that area is, is all right. I'm sure it was devastated by smoke and, and everything, but that area, it seems like that, the fires didn't stretch out that far. Um, we were in Southern Oregon. We were in that area for, um, like, until, until 1990. And then 1990, we moved to Mexico. We were in that outer place and moved to Mexico and actually got divorced in Mexico. But for the first five years, I was with my husband and we bought a, um, an organic farm. We made our own organic farm and we had turkeys and chickens and giant um, uh, gardens, both you know vegetable gardens and flower gardens. And oh God, it was just lovely. And um, that area of Mexico where we first lived is Pátzcuaro, Michoacán, and that's my heritage. That's where my father was from, and that's the Purépecha people. So it's a largely indigenous area, just exquisite. Um, all 16th century architecture and uh, indigenous villages, and that's when I began studying the, mytho- the Purépecha mythology, um, my ancestry, and it's where the Day of the Dead is widely celebrated it's renowned in mexico for that so you know i was there and my kids were growing up in those little villages that are actually in the in the disney film coco which was not bad at all they really did uh the artists uh went to towns in mexico where it's widely celebrated so some of those towns my kids even you know it's like they could recognize it Mm. and um the uh the graveyards the cemeteries they really are uh let's they are archetypal. They are, they, they take on an otherworldly, you know, feel for a couple of weeks of the year, actually, because the Day of the Dead is so, so widely celebrated and the, the plazas, the 16th century plazas, 
you know, are lined with the flowers, people selling the flowers, the indigenous come down from the mountains with all of their wares. And some of them are just, I mean, the, the, the representations of death as everyday people, the, the, the clay sculptures and the, um, the papel picado, which is the, the paper cutouts of death, the food, the, the drinks, just the incredible tradition of it. And the graveyards are just splendid, the night, the, the splendiferous, the night of the first going into the second. It's unlike anything that, I mean, I've ever, I had ever experienced before, really. Because people go to the graves of their ancestors, their families, and they, they have kind of a picnic with them, right? They, they're, they're communicating with them. They're spending time with them. They're, there's this amazing, not only acceptance of death, but recognizing that death is as much a part of life as life is. And to, to be so at peace with that is, I think is so healthy in a culture because in the West, we don't do that. Death is over there. <laughs> you know, Dana, I just wrote my dissertation on the Mexican Day of the Dead. You know, it's a Jungian inquiry and exactly what you're saying is that until COVID hit actually, death had pretty much been in the closet for a couple of centuries. 17th century really goes back it, both in the US and um, Europe, uh, Great Britain, it became uh, euphemized and we no longer even use the word he died on this. It right. was like he passed. He passed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it, you know, it, death was really sort of relegated to the closet and became a very taboo subject. Mm -hmm. And whereas, you know, when you're studying, let's say, Mesoamerican culture, while death was something to be respected, it, it was integrated, it was part of life. We, people lived closer to nature. So it was, you know, life, death, rebirth it was an ongoing cycle. And so that doesn't mean that they weren't frightened by it, but it meant that it was, they knew, they recognized it was part of life. And it was one of the biggest indigenous celebrations of the year um, in, you know, throughout Mesoamerica. Mm -hmm. I mean, and, and to this day, you know, it, become, it became satirical. It, it, death became sort of a national totem uh, for Mexico, you know, and um, among the 20th century artists and intellectuals, you know, like Diego Rivera, um, Guadalupe, Jose Guadalupe Posada was um, um, a satirist. He was a, um, a journalist, and he, he was the one who really popularized La Catrina, which is uh, which literally means the fashionable lady, but she her image sort of um, mocked uh, the the European style ladies of Mexico City, right? The rich, sort of meaning um, that no matter who you are, death comes to us all, right? And um, and so that that kind of um, satire, that satirical grin that La Catrina has, is sort of like part of the attitude that they take to it. It's at once, you know, revered and mocked, you know, just sort of yeah. keeps you, it brings a grounding to who you are and who we are. I mean, it came to us in the U.S. in much harsher ways, all over the planet, really, yeah. that have to face death. Well, and, and the thing about uh, Dia de los Muertes is that it is not at all something that, it is indigenous to 
Mexico and I'm, I'm guessing also in other areas of Central America, um, that it is not a European thing, that this is something that, um, and I find it so interesting because there's a mixture now, of course, because Catholicism came from Spain during the, um, you know, the days of the conquistadores. <laughs> Um, but the but the bring, the melding of now we have a melding of Catholicism and and Dia de los Muertes so you have the indigenous and the European mixing together very much and it's something that I touched on in in my obviously in my dissertation because I mean because it, it's very much a blend you know the, when when the Spaniards came over their ideas of, of death um, and, and Catholicism would basically be imposed um, right. and the day of the dead took on so many different faces let's say in, in the urban in mexico city where there was more blended <clears throat> let's say the mestizo which is the blend of the spanish and indian it wasn't widely celebrated it was in the indigenous villages where they found it where most of it's been chronicled and um so and, and sometimes they would be allowed, depending on who the priests were, who the who, which clergy, and which town, uh, which towns would allow it. And some of them saying, "No, this is this is too much like uh, you know the ancient religions. No, this isn't all right. We're not going to allow the the uh, ofrendas, the altars in the houses, and death. You know, they they took over. Um, it's like the death ways. They took over. The church was involved." and death everything had to go through the church mm -hmm. so the graveyards then and and so then the people knew that they would have to bring offerings to the priests you know the the food the candles everything so that the priests would be happy and they could do their ritual and so so if you had a cool priest in your village <laughs> who was fine with uh the celebrating you know, the ancestors, ancestors. Then, 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 then you'd be in a good spot because you could, you could celebrate, you could do, you, you know, you do your little obeisance uh, offerings, I should say, to the priests and then you're good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, but they very much, I mean, I mean, today it's very much a Catholic, you know, I remember, um, because the, even, because the people are very much Catholic, that, that um, Catholicism let's say any, any time there was a, a conquest and a, a, you know, let's say Christianity took over, even whether it was among the European pagans or the, the, the Mesoamericans, you know, their, their, their religions were destroyed, disdained, and the kind of uh, torture and abuse that they sustained, if they practiced it, it was pretty horrifying. So that, that leaves trauma. And so, you know, of course, a new religion is, is going to be accepted. And um, so today, if, if the people are in the graveyard up until 2, 3 a.m., the priests come in at, at, at dawn and they'll do a mass in the graveyard. It's so beautiful. I mean, it really is a lovely combination, you know, to, 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 to see that going on. It, it, it really, it is such a, a mystical experience. Everybody is like that. It's the numinous, you know, nobody can deny that what's, what's happening there is just otherworldly. You know, since we were talking about Catholicism and like European Catholicism versus 
you know, new world, or at least in the, in the European frame, calling it the new world, even though it's not the new world, it was always there, <laughs> you know, that whole thing. But there's liberation. Can we talk a little bit about liberation theology? Because that's something that is, that is, that is something that is local to the, what we refer to as the new world rather than, and it's very different from, uh, from the Catholicism of Europe. Absolutely. You know, I found it's interesting because when I grew up, I grew up with uh, Irish nuns and literally Irish nuns that were newly, you know, immigrated to the U.S. So they brought all whatever trauma was happening in, in, in that era, they brought them with them. And they were as strict, I felt incredibly repressed by the Irish nuns and priests. They really, we were the first Mexican family in that parish and you know the, my parents were um sort of they didn't fit into that mold they didn't fit into the the, the good little irish american and italian american families they were far out my father was a musician you know he, he had studied um law in mexico city he you know he was he became an engineer in the u.s he, he was like i said they were very much into esoteric studies and so we didn't fit in, but he knew that in our neighborhood, that was going to be the best for our education. So he sent us there. So they didn't really like us, <laughs> you know, <laughs> they didn't. They liked my brother. He was the only one out of, you know, five of us, I had one brother and he was, he played sports. So that was cool. Uh -huh. But the rest of us were, you know, hopeless. And um, so for me, I had, I had, I had suffered, I had suffered at the, at the expense of the nuns, not true uh, in, 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 in St. Francis, but it took me a long time to come to peace with the church, with the Catholic church. And for three and a half, almost four years in Mexico, I had the privilege in Cuernavaca of, of working with um, the Benedictine nuns as a translator, interpreter um, for liberation theology movement. And that was just one of the richest experiences you know in that I had in Mexico there were so many but that was one of the most learning I like I said earlier it was sort of like getting a, a master's degree um, I got to interpret for the nuns and the priests as well as university professors economists historians legislative analysts shamans and how they sort of distinguish it is um, Gerardo, who was this, actually a Dutch, he was, used to be a former Dutch priest who, who turned, who actually left the priesthood to marry and became a minister and um, a missionary. And he, he would distinguish the difference between Catholic orthodoxy and orthopraxy. And for him, the liberation theology was orthopraxy. Orthopraxy it was putting the faith in action. And they did, it was so beautiful. The nuns that I worked for, they were at every protest for the people in the streets. They would travel, you know, days into the mountains to give communion to the poppy growers. <laughs> you know, it, they, they really sort of did embody that um, image of, let's say, Christ, not as we understand him today, you know, but Christ as somebody that accepted everybody mm -hmm. that, you know, was loving, you know, and, and putting that into action, they, they, um, they formed, um, cooperatives, this, both Benedictine nuns and priests 
in Mexico and the US, they formed cooperatives of people, let's say craftspeople, so that they would you know, have a way to live. Because in Mexico, the, the um, 30% of the people live in, in poverty and among them, no, 70%, and 30% live in misery. So the misery means that they can't, they don't have a way to eat. The poverty means that they've, they've figured a way to make a living. They're incredibly resourceful and just the hardest working people. So among them, they, um, the, the cooperatives really helped one another. And this is the stuff that the, the nuns and priests were involved in creating and, and also educating so that the people could understand that their poverty was not an accident or because they were, you know, just these, you know, poor wretches, but that it was, you know, sort of a worldwide plan imposed by transnational, you know, economic policies that, um, you know, basically, um, let's say, um, were more powerful than the nations themselves. Mm -hmm. So I found that the, among these, you know, going into and traveling in, going into these poor communities that they were better educated about the economics, you know, that created these conditions than most middle-class Americans. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and these people weren't educated, but they were educated by the nuns and priests who, one of the priests that I interpreted for had two PhDs, one from Israel and one from Brazil. And, you know, these, these people were really, you know, working towards a vision of, you know, of, of um, equality and unity, uh, let's say, uh, um, the recognition that another world is possible. If, if we live under what is, um, you know, imposed on us by, uh, let's say, the world of advertisers and media, that this is it, this is the world, this is, this is the planet, this is it, this is the only possibility. Liberation theologians recognize, no, 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 there's, there's, another, there's another world is possible. So many worlds are possible. So it's, it's about, there's a civil, civil rights aspect, there's also a social betterment aspect. And there's an economic empowerment aspect then for regular people that they yes. can lift themselves out of poverty yes. and, and, and make something of their life, be liberated from the bonds that were imposed on them originally. The irony of this, of course, is that the church, in the beginning, it was convert or die. They, yes. were, they were exploited by the church and here it is here the church is taking action to to reverse that to to change it to to um you know to help people instead of exploit them i find that really well one one as that branch that branch of the church because the other branch still exists is alive and well yeah but so i mean it is it is that particular branch and it's that branch to me is is such a um like I said, it's what allowed me to come to peace with the church. So the Benedictines, I, I, the Benedictines, yes. right? And also the Franciscans also, right? The Franciscans, the Jesuits, you yeah. know, I, I, yeah, a lot of, I was working for the Benedictines, but among them, I, I, that priest I would interpret for was also, he was a Jesuit and, mm -hmm. 
I mean, there were just so many different, but working together. But like I said, I mean, it's that particular faction of, you know, liberation theology that one of the things that I recall was this, I mean, just the small, the smallest things, you know, they had, um, for instance, let's say people that didn't have a craft, you know, they could learn one. Mm -hmm. And while they're learning, they would also have in the neighborhood, let's say one week, let's say this family, everybody was going to donate, you know, a kilo of beans and a kilos, a couple of kilos of rice. And then the next week it'd be somebody else so that everybody, nobody was going without food. Mm -hmm. You know, there was always going to be, you know, this cooperation, this thing going on. It was taking care of the people, you know, and, and teaching the people as they, as they go and people teaching each other as they go and among them, there were people from Guatemala as well that would come and share their story of the incredible oppression they experienced uh, under Rios Mont and the, you know, in that particular, that hideous era in the, in the 70s. And mm -hmm. it, it was incredibly enlightening um, working those years and, and, and hardening working those years with the, with the nuns. So is it fair to say that liberation theology is really about creating heaven on earth as opposed to being overly concerned with the afterlife and that, you know, it's fine to be wretched now, but everything will be great once you die. Like, <laughs> it sounds like they were interested in creating a better world here and now yeah. for people. I think, I think, you know, I, I mean, I think it's hard to sort of put anything under a capsule, but I do feel like that was certainly creating, you know, something better here now is certainly part of their vision, recognizing, I mean, they, they held, the Virgin of Guadalupe, Tonantzin, right? They, they, they recognize her as a symbol of, of liberation. Mm -hmm. And they do one of the workshops that they do is on Guadalupe Tonantzin and her role, it, something that I also wrote about in my dissertation, her role in the conversion. It's such an interesting thing because what it does, I mean, ultimately when you, when you begin to study is you recognize that we're in this process of evolution, that human evolution, our, 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 the human story may come to an end because we have such an incredibly destructive side. And what happens, if, you know, we can't even recognize that. We, we, we put everything in, into what Jungian world would call the shadow. So we, you know, all of our more destructive and, and, and you know, the instinctual realms that sort of seep out and, and come out and wars that we create or hatred or, you know, things that what we do at the same time we are evolving, you know, and we, we have created, if you think of the human story, we have created these beautiful, you know, let's say works of art. It's, I think Richard Tarnas, who is a philosopher and an archetypal astrologer and a depth psychologist, he talks about the two meta-narratives that we're living, you know, where one, we have, you know, this incredibly destructive story, you know, where we created the atom bomb out of you know, the technologies and our sciences. And yet at the same time, we have all of the arts and, and, and the sciences, you know, it's like what we do with them and whose hands they fall. And, you know, so we're living these two stories side by side and we are evolving. And so you, you do see sort of like an evolving story. And like Jung said, so much depends on our psychological constitution if we make it through, can we make it through the story? It, he called, 
he, he foresaw this moment and, and perceived in the 1930s sort of this doom and gloom, this nihilistic mood that had set up, you know, around the, the world. And he called it a kairos moment, which is a Greek word for an opportune moment, right? Mm -hmm. And he said, for the changing of the gods. In other words, of the fundamental principles and symbols of an era. Well, during the Spanish conquest, that's what they, you know, in a Jungian lens, you could say that's what they experienced, was quite literally a changing of the gods. And the role of Guadalupe Tonantzin in that changing was completely and utterly luminous. Her role was so important. You know, at, at, at once, it, you know, first of all, it allowed a people that had been completely torn away from their gods hope, a vision. She was a brown-skinned goddess, right? She appeared in, in um, uh, where what used to be, uh, in Tepeyat, what used to be a, the, a sacred site and pilgrimage site of Tonantzin, you know, who was basically the, an Aztec mother goddess, incredibly important pilgrimage site. And, and, and um, so she appeared in garments, quite literally, that carried the constellations of what was happening in the sky at the time. Ah, yes, and this has actually been proven, you know. When we see our Our Lady of Guadalupe, when we see that image, which is a which is a, a Christianized Mary figure, but it's it's really the archetype of that goddess. That's what she's representing. Well, she's she's not just an archetype of that goddess because she she appeared in that goddess's place, but her what she is. The symbols that she's carrying on her cloak itself, not the cloak, because the cloak are the stars, and they, they, they reveal the, the constellations in the sky at the time. But the symbols on, that were well studied by um, the Aztecs at the time, as well as obviously the priests, the clergy. But the symbols talk about a new god and a new sun that was being born. If, if the Mexica or the Aztec people had five suns, they were living the fifth sun. Each sun, had, and these are cosmogonic errors, that had, had come to an end. And the fifth sun, for it to be reborn, the gods and the people came together to give it birth. It came to an end when the Spanish arrived. Mm. But the end had already been foretold in, in the cosmogonic era. And so that was the end of the world as they knew it. But a new world, she, they were dying, and they were completely dying off. So to... to you know, her, her role, her importance, you know, can't, can't be underlooked, you know, or dismissed. She was so important in, in giving hope to a new people. She's always been since a, a symbol of, of liberation and, main, and maintains that symbol in revolutions today. You know, uh, in, in terms of forming the, the Mexican psyche, she's crucial. She's a crucial, but she, you know, she, yeah, we do recognize her, let's say, uh, the, the Mesoamerican historians, many of them do call her Guadalupe Tonantzin. They recognize both, right? Mm -hmm. Both sort of the reemergence of that, of the, of the Mesoamerica, the Aztec, you know, mother goddess in her. So she's both. She's, she's um, but very uniquely, let's say, Guadalupe. Mm -hmm. So the the whole thing of the of the conquest and the Spanish coming oh and the Portuguese also of course right. far the south in Brazil but them coming over and essentially destroying 
indigenous culture at the same time you were saying that that was actually included that 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 cycle was actually kind of included in these in these prophecies in these stories that that it, that it also did it destroyed and it also created a new world it did it did it created a new world a nation that was a nation was born out of that hideous you know yeah tragedy i mean just you know it was such an interesting process too i mean while we might not like what we see it's it's history you know it's like you know a nation was born out of that and a blending and that blending is very much who the mexican people are one of the things when the let's say in 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 union understanding the ancient gods all carry uh, their opposites they have a creative and a destructive side Mm -hmm. And that represents psychological, our psychological constitution, our wholeness. That's who we are. We are light and dark, mm -hmm. conscious and unconscious, right? And what happened when the Christianity was imposed is that is that pretty, that's pretty much one-sided. Mm -hmm. Everything is light and all darkness is projected onto one archetype. That's the devil, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so that creates... Um, an intrapsychic split, and in terms of our evolution, that intrapsychic split is 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 incredibly um, dangerous, and and the church did everything in their power to maintain that intrapsychic split, going back to um, let's say you know 12th century uh, Europe when uh, the witch trials began. Mm -hmm. The Inquisition, right? Was at that time. Yeah, absolutely. And that Inquisition was to maintain that intrapsychic split. Anybody that dared, you know, any woman, especially, or it, you know, that uh, in that period, the worst instruments of torture were invented in history, and there's that are still used some to, to this day. Yeah, you know, and that was under Pope Innocent. Ooh, not the Innocent. <laughs> no, 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 exactly. <laughs> I mean, just absolutely hideous, but that intrapsychic split, what it does to us to this day is that we blame anything that's dark, we blame it out. We, we, we project it out. And this is how the men of the church who so feared their own sexuality because they had become celibate, mm -hmm. that they, it was just evil that they projected outwards. And that's how they purged themselves through the incredible torture and, and burning and, and death of these women and you know, Jews or anybody that didn't conform. And also what they did to themselves in terms of flavoring oh, and yeah. hair shirts and all this horrible stuff, this mortification of yeah. the flesh to purge this thing. When, when in actual fact, if they had been okay with their shadow sides, it, it like it, this never would have happened. And yet there we go, human evolution. I mean, it's like, Jesus, I mean, that's just, as a as a race, as a human race, it's just that's part of our evolution. I mean, and let's say it's it's teleological; it's moving towards something. But we may or may not make, depending on our psychological constitution. Can we, to this day, embrace our shadow? I mean, we, we look at our, our leaders. You know, who everything that's they don't like about themselves, they project it outwards. You know. Well, exactly, and and you know, one of the things I wanted to bring up was uh, so we we just went we we just had. Uh, Columbus Day, you know, which of course is, you know, people think it's very tempting to want to say, 
oh, this, this, this asshole, uh, errant Italian, you know, Genovese mercenary went off course and accidentally ended up in the Bahamas and then enslaved the people and, and did all these horrible things. And, 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 and so we should not be celebrating this guy. And then, you know, the, the movement to change it to Indigenous People's Day. And I absolutely, like, I, I, I understand that impulse. I absolutely understand that impulse. At the same time, looking at this person and this journey and what he did, what he did was what people did, what European conquerors did at the time. And he was under the auspices, of course, he was funded by Queen Isabella and King Ferdinand of Spain. And so we look back in our 21st century lens and say, that was bad. What he did was bad. And at the same time, we have to understand that in, they didn't know then what we know now. You know, we say, well, why, why couldn't they have just, you know, practiced fair trade practices and cooperated with the natives and been nice to them? Learn something from them. <laughs> and learn something from yeah. them. But instead they came in, they didn't know any different. These Europeans, they came to conquer and might in their minds made right for the glory of Spain. At the and time. God. And God, yes, their, their version of God. And then, and, then, and then exploiting and enslaving these people. And it was a horrible thing. At the same time, it reminds me so much of what we were just talking about, about when speaking of liberation theology and the, the, the coming of the conquistadores and what a horrendous thing it was. And it was also the beginning of the birth of a new world. Yeah. And, well, and it was, it was. You know, in Mexico, I mean, there is no Columbus Day, but there is an Indigenous Peoples Day. Right. Yeah, I and mean, that's just how it's celebrated. To me, you know, I, I feel, as, as I feel, history is history, but I do feel like Indigenous Peoples Day is much, I think this, at this point in history, it's time that we, Everything that we didn't learn back then, let's learn now. Well, that's, and that's actually a point that, that I've, I've made with people, you know, lately, uh, conversations that I've had this week is, why can't we, you know, have both? Why can't we honor the indigenous cultures and, and also acknowledge and, and, and teach history how it happened instead of this glorified version of, you know, in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. It's like, yeah, it was like the thing with Thanksgiving and the pilgrims and the sitting around the table with the native peoples and whatnot. And you're thinking, oh, I don't know if that really actually happened. Maybe it did in isolated incidents. I like to think that it did, but you know, we, we have these and, and it's important there, there's sometimes there is resent, resentment that comes from European heritage people in the United States. And they say, that's what happened. That's what our people did. We're not gonna apologize for it. It's just what happened. And, and then there's other people who feel like they have to overly apologize to, to native peoples about what happened. And it, and it really creates a lot of, I, I wish that we could, that I wish that we could turn it into a teachable moment. And I think it can be, I think, I mean, I, I'm a big believer in the truth, teach the truth, teach what really happened. So even if it's not as nice a story for your, for your fourth graders, 
You know, I think it's important that they know, no, this actually happened. And yes, it was pretty awful. So what are we going to do about it now? We can't change history. So, but what we can do is we can move forward with positivity and acceptance and respect of indigenous cultures. And the way history is written. I mean, because at this point in this Kairos moment, because we are, I mean, to imagine that we're in any other, I mean, the world as we know it really is unraveling. The pandemic has placed everything as bare and as stark as it is, you know. And And maybe it needed to. That's the thing. Maybe it needed to. I mean, you know, it's it's exact. To me, we can't separate it. Again, if if one cosmogonic era or sun had come to an end with the fifth sun, I think it's safe to say that this Kairos moment is the end of our sun of the world as we know it. And that it is time, you know, the, an old world is dying and, and convulsing as it does and, and, and throwing tantrums as it does. And a new world, you know, let's say whether it's a global Green New Deal and, and all of those things that that means, you know, farmers cooperatives growing up and out of these kind of things, different ways of viewing what a corporation looks like and how it's run. and. You know, let's say even in the 1980s, when a corporate head earned 20 times more than his workers did, now it's 300 times more, an obscene right. amount. These kind of things don't, they can't last, they can't work. I mean, it, you know, it's the worst of the Gilded Age, the, the depression that's upon us. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, everything is just sort of crumbling. So it is a time, you know, to, to, to gather and give birth to a new vision and, and education is so crucial. Just like you're saying, to, who, who wrote history, we know, what, who, you know that we're teaching our fourth grade kids and you know, elementary school kids, who wrote that? Well, the victors, right? So now it's time for a different way, a different education. You know, everything has been geared towards, our education system has been geared towards what university demands, and the university demands what the corporations demand. Right. So basically, revisioned, reviewed, reimagined, you know. There's a- There's also something that I I think a lot of people have been living under the belief that, um, or the impression that somehow you can't have economic prosperity and economic sustainability. The thing is, is you can, but it takes innovation and it takes the will. And so, I mean, what an amazing opportunity that we have that everything has been stripped bare and torn down and we have this opportunity to remake it and you can have green capitalism. You can have um, uh, innovation technology which creates jobs so people can put money in their pockets so they can and they can also uh, come up with new ways of doing things, better ways, cleaner ways, more sustainable ways. I mean. What, what an amazing opportunity. And I just really hope that, that, uh, that this period of time gives birth to that, to a new age. And we could definitely tip either way, but we'll just have to see. So, yeah, so be it. I mean, if, if, in any rite of passage, you know, it's, it's a death rebirth, but the rebirth isn't guaranteed. That's what makes it, that's what makes it real though. That's what, that's what creates that, you know, that impulse towards um, Joanna Macy, Buddhist scholar and, and systems theorist, you know, says that it's, it's something that, you know, we move towards with our hearts, you know, we imagine towards and, and move towards with our hearts and our effort, 
and uh, but with no surety that it's going to happen. <laughs> no, there's no there's no guarantee, but it is something that you know. As I would always tell my students, if we can't imagine it, it's not going to happen, is it? I mean, if, right. if really in in so many dictionaries, the word peace is described as the absence of war, and if and if peace is only the absence of war, it's not likely we'll ever have it because what do we know about it really? I mean, right. we have to we have to imagine into what that might look like. You know, Disney's engineers are called Imagineers. I, I, I've always loved that, you know, because, or, or, or Einstein recognized that imagination is what, you know, gave the, you know, uh, birth to new civilizations. Absolutely. A very real force. And, and Einstein said that imagination was the most important thing of all, because without it, there can be no innovation. That's it. Because you're just repeating the same old patterns. Imagination has to come in. And, um, oh, and I, and I did want to um, talk a little bit about Carl Jung and where he came from and what, what, what environment that he sprang from and how he came to be the... The, the archetype guy. <laughs> I love it, I love it. <laughs> so Swiss doctor, psychiatrist, and ultimately psychologist, uh, always a man of science. He actually came from uh, humble beginnings as the son of a, uh, of a minister, a uh, Christian, so in a line of them, right? And, uh, and, and and really did not like school as a young boy. Really, I mean, his 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 book that's about him. It's not he didn't write it, but it came from him basically. His memories, dreams, and reflection. Um, I mean, he tells his story how he was pretty much a country bumpkin, and you know, very much. Uh, uh, he he didn't like going to school. He he felt because he was a brilliant boy, and he had been accused once of you know, because he had written such a brilliant essay and his teacher said, Jung, you, you know, this is forgery. Who, who did this? You know, I mean, he, they, he, uh, he really didn't like that. So he, he struggled at first and, and um, you know, ultimately, you know, he, at one point he was, he was going, you know, he, he thought, you know, as he did continue and, you know, make himself strong and, and, and um, because he'd suffered an illness that was almost, um, you know, let's just say soul, soul inspired and where he actually wouldn't go back to school and, you know, he, he you know, he suffered this illness and stayed at home a lot and, you know, until he heard his father one day and I don't know whether it was one of his uncles, I can't remember who was saying, oh, poor boy. What do you think is going to become of him? And that's when he realized how severe it was. And he, so he, he knew he had to get back to school. And he was able to overcome whatever illness he was experiencing. And, and he did go back to school and, and with a passion. His mother is, is best described as sort of uncanny. And, and um, Jung had, you know, he had his own little world he, of imagination. He was always living in the imaginal realms, you know, as a, as a child. He, he would once, he would go to his favorite rock and, and once wondered whether he was the rock imagining him or whether he was himself imagining the rock. I mean, just sort of always an esoteric kid. And um, he, he, he got his training in um, a psychiatric hospital 
where, you know, as a psychiatrist, as a young psychiatrist, he began recognizing mythological motifs being spoken by his patients that could have no way of having knowledge of those ancient motifs. And so that's where sort of this idea, you know, he, he of course, he, his studies were so vast, you know, he, the Greek and the classics, and you, know, you go back to, to um, Plato and, and the idea of the archetypes where he drew from them, because how could this, let's say, the, the, a schizophrenic man and, and Bergozzi know about, you know, a, a particular archetype that came from Egypt or something. So that really got him, that really, you know, set him apart and his studies just began taking off because he was so moved by what he was experiencing in the psychiatric wards among his patients. And um, the idea of the archetype that he, he recognized as a, let's say a universal um, motif uh, that, uh, you know, went beyond time and, and space and would help to, let's say, correct and the otherwise, and guide and transform and, and, and correct the otherwise one-sidedness, limited one-sidedness of our consciousness. Mm -hmm. And these archetypal figures were like the language of the soul that we would find in mythology or dreams uh, or found in, in practices like active imagination. Um, active imagination is this incredible practice that he, after studying all of these, uh, sort of, a, the, what did he call it, the high harmony of, of, of religions that talked about the, let's say, whether it's the Gnostics and the Mithraic and just a whole group of different, the Orthodox, the Jewish, um, just all of these religions that recognized, ancient, right, that recognized uh, the astrological compulsions of fate. Mm. Such an interesting, you know, and it, active imagination he gathered from theurgy, 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 T-H-E-U-R-G-Y, meaning God work. And what it did was it took you into the imaginal, not imaginary, but imaginal realms between soul and spirit. That's what these ancient um, philosopher magicians would do. In, in search of, let's say, freedom from these astrological compulsions um, and add complexes to that. Let's add complexes to that to free and, and so that somebody could individuate, transform, heal, not, not repressing shadow, but learning how these, you know, let's say, the astrological compulsions would work. I'm not an astrologer, but let's just say right now in the sky, what's we have, we're experiencing a trine um, of Pluto, Saturn, and Uranus. And throughout history, when these have come together, there was another plague. Um, the, the, the forces of Pluto, let's say, let's look at the underworld god, um, you know, volcanoes, volcanic eruptions, um, and, and how that interacts in a person, uh, underworld, uh, instinctual realms. Um, and, and we see it acting out right now in our, in our government, in our, in our politicians. And 
let's say, just the worst possible impulses. But there's also all gods, you know, they're multivalent. So they have good and bad. So it's like the creative forces. We have the, uh, let's say, Saturn kind of images, like say in, in the heroic, the Joan of Arcs, the young Greta Thunberg's, right, that are the emerging voices, the, the Black Lives Matters, the, the, the forces that are rising up, that kind of power of the Uranus. These are all where you see the astrological compulsive, compulsions being both creative and destructive. You see the you know, one that's very hopeful and the other that's ripping our nation apart, right? Um, and so to, to learn, I mean, to, to enter these imaginal realms and learn how these forces work allows one to, let's say, you're no longer just controlled by that fate or those compulsions. You, you become conscious of them. You're able, and, and, and through time able to, let's say, flow with them more than just be victims, you know, unconscious victims or wandering brutes if you're in power, you know. In other words, awareness is what heals. <laughs> I like it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well put. <laughs> I the recognition, it. the recognition of these forces and being able to understand the interplay of these forces and be able to harmonize them. It sounds like he, it sounds well, like Jung was actually rather, he's coming at it from a scientific perspective, and from a philosophical per perspective, but he's really at his root, he's a shaman. I like it. Right? You know, he, he, it's, it's not like you can, you can harmonize those forces, but rather you can seek harmony within those forces. I see. That's yeah. different. Yeah, because we can't control, let's say, those, but we can right. learn how to, let's say, dance with them. I, I really like, yeah, very much shamanic. And he did, he did, I mean, that a whole act of imagination, that's an ancient practice that he gathered from those, you know, from the ancient, you know, uh, philosopher, magicians, you know. So entering those realms would join soul and spirit. So he was studying the mystics of, yeah, of all these different cultures, whether it's, whether it's the Kabbalists of Judaism or the Sufis of Islam or the Christian mystics of Christianity or or the, um, uh, I'm trying to think of the others, but you know, there's so many of them and they're all universal because they speak the same language. That's what I find fascinating. It is fascinating. I mean, he was absolutely brilliant, a Leo. <laughs> Not surprisingly, right? Um, but, you know, to me, certainly, you know, let's say in our history, when we think of psychology, most people, you know, think of Freud or they think of, let's say, therapies like cognitive and behavioral therapies. Jung, I feel like Jung's voice is now is really beginning to emerge, even though he was very much a 20th century man. Right now, I feel, I mean, if, even if you go on Spotify, there's so many Jungian podcasts that are coming out. Because I feel like now is his moment as we enter this Kairos moment. Mm -hmm. Now his his wisdom is like people are, are seeking it out because it is vast. I mean, mm -hmm. I I feel like I, you know, I'm I'm I lack even just you know there's just so much to to say about him and so many realms that he delved in. But that his practice of active imagination is certainly. Um, 
you know, it's one where we enter a space, like a meditative space, but using an image that either came to us from a dream or came to us from a myth or, or whatever, and not imposing on it, but asking of it and just waiting, waiting for the psyche to speak. So it's very different than the ego. I mean, we need the ego so, because we are, you know, to be in balance. Right. But um, certainly when we allow the psyche to speak and guide mm -hmm. our transformation, you know, our individuation, our evolution can mm -hmm. you know, begin to unfold. I mean, we also recognize it, what he recognized in synchronicity, which is absolutely, I, I absolutely love mm -hmm. it. It's fascinating. It's something that I remember sort of experiencing, you know, in my early youth and, and um, you know, in something meaningful coincidence, not just, oh, you know, she sneezed when I laughed at the same time. No, something that's meaningful, you know, a causal that, you know, let's say you're, you know, you're, um, something that actually happens out of nature you're, you're remembering you know a moment um or and, and a sign comes to you from nature you know it's it like you know in the form at that moment you know it's like nature itself begins to speak to you that's in sold world that whole idea that sort of we lost it when in part of our evolution when we separated let's say in the 15th century enlightenment when we separated science and from the enchantment the enchanted world i mean and 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 that needed to happen as part of evolution we needed we needed science you know and 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 i have nothing but respect for science and i wear my mask and i you know i'm a big i'm a big fan of science and technology but you know properly used and and um but to me we lost that enchantment that recognition that everything's in souls in christianity only only humans are have souls and and and, and of course the, the sacred archetypes but in in ancient mesoamerican and 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 and, and um ancient uh religions around the world everything's unsold even man-made things are unsold mm -hmm. you know so it's it's that ensouled world speaks to us it's intelligent it's unfolding ours have souls what's that Cars have souls. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Everything. Brad will be very happy to hear this. <laughs> but it's interesting because things are imbued, things that are created are imbued with absolutely. the makers. And, and there's certain, you know how there's this, um, when you pick up, whether it's a piece of jewelry or it's a watch or, it, or it's, um, you know, something that has been made or a sword, in my case, um, <laughs> there's a feel to it. There's something that kind of speaks to you and you know which one that you want, which one is meant for you in this array of things to choose from. There is something that speaks to you. And I wonder if, if that is a bit, you know, what this is about, that, that there are certain qualities that are innate in, in, in inanimate objects by virtue of what resonates with you and and where they come from that's how i've always found that i've always found that fascinating absolutely agreed agreed i mean even something not not nearly as beautiful as what you're saying but you know and maybe the other day complaining how she really didn't want to go back to work it just wasn't safe but she got out to her car and she had a flat <laughs> you know her you know what i said see yeah we're not doing it <laughs> yeah. no there's that agreement it's like oh okay <laughs> you know 
Um, That's, and and so Jung was active in was was he did he begin his his practice in that was it in the thirties nineteen thirties? It was earlier than that. Actually. Earlier twenties or even before then. Yeah, I, I don't want to give a date because I'll, I'll be wrong, but yeah, he was already pra practicing in, Interesting. in the 1930s stuff. Yeah, I'll, I, I don't want to, you know, because I don't feel, you know, I, I feel like dates. Well, people can look it up. Absolutely. <laughs> look all that stuff up, but, and I, I think it's, um, so, so depth psychology is what is the, is the Jungian realm. That's where when, when people like you want to study psychology and you want to study archetypes and, and the workings of all of that, the field is depth psychology, depth as in we're plumbing the depths. Absolutely. Absolutely. Exactly. The, and, 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 um, and archetypal. So Jungian and archetypal. Archetypal psychology comes from James Hillman, who was um, very much a Jungian, but he sort of just, whereas Jung stressed being, let's say, a man of science, Hillman didn't, he, he moved more towards the humanities, mm. more towards the, the romantics. It was just so, both of them were so incredibly poetic and their writing is just amazing for, for, um, for psychologists. I mean, you, you know, it's sort of, uh, how they express themselves is just, I mean, it, it really is sort of lush. You can feel the humanities in both of them nonetheless. You know, it's, it's um, whereas archetypal, if, if you um, sort of emphasized individuation, Hillman said basically that every moment is an individuating moment. You know, if we're, you know, if we're in the moment, you have that possibility, you know, but it's a, it's an ongoing, it's not, he felt that Jung was almost too linear in, in this move towards individuation. And, mm. um, whereas he felt like it is an ongoing process and it is ongoing, you know, when we, you know, when we're willing to incorporate, let's say the opposites, bring it, willing to first face the shadow, which most of us aren't. It's, it's highly uncomfortable because it, it's not something that, we, it's not an intellectual, you know, process. It's, it's a feeling process and it's done, let's say, with an analyst or there's other ways, of course, you know, but that study of, of the dream work is, is one of the, you know, it's one of the channels towards, towards that. Um, so, so the process of individuation is the process of how we become ourselves? Yeah, self with a capital S. Jung recognized the self with a capital He didn't make the capital S, but it did come afterwards. The post-Jungians put the capital S. He distinguished that self as the God image. If, if we think of it, you know, we're born in the image of God in, in Christian um, theology, that God image is ourself with a capital S. That's that's what we move towards. That's who's always urging us forward. Mm, it's your higher self. It's your higher being. There you go. The recognition, the the um, the the culmination of your potential. Yeah. That. That's what we're moving towards. Mm -hmm. But we, you know, it's a journey. What's called a, like a night sea journey, a willingness to undertake it. That's what we see that in myth all the time. Even the myth of the heroes. It's an ongoing sort of um, willingness to, to face the shadows and the beasts and the monsters and work with them, you know, um, let's say in a, in, a, in a conscious way that doesn't just stay here in the head, but 
in the feeling tones. What are the feeling tones? So it is the embodiment of the hero's journey, as Joseph Campbell would say. Yeah, but I mean, it, the, the, um, that's one way to view it. You know, um, my, my dissertation chair, Susan, Susan Rowland, would, would, would disagree. She said, he never called us the hero's journey. It was a mythological journey of the hero. Mm, okay. And um, <laughs> yeah, know, right. that, that's an academic. That that's oh, academics are very well, very semantics matter to them. <laughs> she's, and 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 she's a lovely academic. And and um, but you know, it is taking on is is a willingness. I mean, there's many ways towards it, and there's a willingness. There has to be the willingness to to do the hard work. You know, it isn't, there's no spiritual bypassing allowed. <laughs> you know, there's no, no shortcuts. Yeah, no, no shortcuts, no transcendence. It's, it's, it's the work, it's the willingness. And once we can, I mean, it's like Jung said, I mean, right now in this Kairos moment, um, so much is at stake and, and so much depends on the psychological constitution of humankind. Mm -hmm. And for us to move beyond this stage, that, let's say, of blaming, of projecting our shadow outwards, is, is, is taking that shadow in and recognizing it, you know, recognizing right. how it possesses us. And, right. and, and, and with help and with guidance, work, work through that. Right. You know, oh, compassion. Sorry. Those, uh, an example of that would be the people who are still really pissed off at Christopher Columbus. <laughs> There's no undoing it. It's happened. It's done. And how we, it's how we move forward and how we make our new world, our beautiful, um, uh, tolerant and respectful and uh, a, a world with truth and communication and authenticity and honoring one another's differences. And honoring, honoring them and celebrating them. I mean, to me, I, when yeah. I think of a, of, a, of a, let's say, of a new world, having been raised, you know, with, let's say, uh, you know, a, a Mexican indigenous father and, a, you know, um, a white Anglo mother, racism never made any sense to me. You know, I never related much to my white side, although I had my Texas grandmother, whom I absolutely loved, absolutely brilliant and wonderful, you know, rebellious woman. Um, but, you know, because we, I was never viewed as white in this culture. Mm -hmm. Growing up in, in, in Sacramento, California, when I did it, we were, we were the Mexican family. We were the first Mexican family to enter our school. I never, you know, I experienced racism my whole life you know, just for being brown skinned, you know, that, that came with it. And, you know, I, I, um, I, but I never understood it. I thought, why, what, you know, I mean, is it's, you know, if, if, if every culture has such richness to share, let's, let's learn from each other, you know, and, and that's how I envision a new world where we can learn, you know, from every, culture imagine a world where it's celebrated yeah the differences and the diversity is celebrated i think of your time in mexico um how did, were you seen as a nortenia were you, were you seen even as, as always you know it's, it's an interesting thing no i mean it, it, it really is interesting because i moved right i wanted to know my 
with aperture roots, which is why I first moved to, to, uh, to Michoacan. I lived in, in Vallarta for about half a year because my sister and my brother were there. And then we moved to Michoacan for six years. And then from there, I moved to Jalapa, Veracruz, which I absolutely loved. I loved the Veracruzanos. And then I moved to Cuernavaca. But when I was living there in Michoacan, what I did see, I mean, you know, it's like I, my grandmother, if you were to see my grandparents, they were com you know, completely indigenous. My grandmother had a long white braid that went down her back and she wove it back up because it was so long. Um, but no, I, I would, of course, I was not viewed as a purepecha. Um, <laughs> I wasn't even viewed as a Mexican, which was really disconcerting. But, you know, I was always considered the gringa. And it was, uh -huh. I thought, wait a minute. You know, in, in, in the U.S., I was always the Mexican, and now here I'm the gringa. Well, where's that? How's that fair? You know? So um, it was one of the most culturally enriching experiences of my life, and I was so, so grateful that I made that decision to bring my three children to Mexico and let them grow up in that environment. You know, my oldest was 11 at the time, and my son was nine, and Tara was four, and they're bicultural and bilingual and multicultural for that same reason. And to me, it was one of the best things that I could have given them was that experience, you know. My oldest daughter, Melissa, is actually teaches um, elementary school at the Spanish Immersion School in, in Portland, uh -huh. you know. And, and so very much working with that, with that community of Mexicans in Portland, Oregon, it's such an enriching thing and every, every indigenous culture, whether it was the uh, Totonacos in, in Veracruz, you know, in the beautiful pyramid sites, or the Yacatas or the Purepecha people, their pyramid sites, or, you know, their indigenous medicine, or in, in, in Cuernavaca, every place that I lived, there was so much richness. In, in the, for the brief period, the six months I lived in Vallarta, the, the Huichol, the influence of the Huichol Indians, their artwork, the religion. We have so much to learn from these cultures. Um, I, and I would include in that, I mean, just the cultures around the world, we can learn from, let's say, the African religion of Ifa, mm -hmm. you know, that practice the Santeria, the, the, um, the, the ancient religions all over the world have so much to teach us where their deities hold that, that tension of opposites, where they have the creative and destructive side you know, the light and the dark, the conscious and the unconscious, that's who we are. That is psycho, that represents psychological wholeness. And, that's and, and, and the, the, the healing through story. And, and mm -hmm. one of the things when I think of you, one of the, the, the first things that comes into my mind is a storyteller, that you have always been a storyteller and that you've incorporated this in, in your teaching. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, I, and I have been doing, and I, and it, you know, I've always, God, I, I, I think I was like 27 when I began storytelling in women's circles. And to me, when you're storytelling, you're bringing the mythologies, you're bringing the ancient, ancient stories with you. And, and that's, that's imparting, imparting knowledge. Right now, one of the books that I'm reading is by a historian, um, a young woman historian, to me young anyway, but called The Fifth Son. And the storytellers, which is so important in, in Mesoamerica, but everywhere, everywhere, because what, what they carry, you know, it, you know, they were the, you know, the, the ancient storytellers, of course, carried the, the stories that were going on right then.
They were the historians. They were the journalists, you know. The European version of that were the troubadours yes. traveling through Europe, telling stories, singing songs, bringing, bringing news to uh, everywhere they went and, and learning from each other and carrying those songs and those stories with them which really is is um i mean in every culture there is there there is that that archetype if you will of the storyteller yeah absolutely absolutely it's interesting too when you say that because my father you know as a as a Buddha in mexico what's true is that there's incredible racism especially towards the indigenous they're still incredibly marginalized and so my father because he he is university educated he experienced racism his entire life in mexico and in, when he was in law school at the UNAM, um, which is uh, in Mexico City, like I said, he, in order to get school, he, he worked. He, he did, uh, <laughs> this is how he tells it. He was a storyteller himself. He did the homework for the rich boys, and he also was a troubadour. My father was a musician, among other things, right? And he was literally, you know, be hired by the boys to you know, to play his guitar and, and, and sing to the girlfriend up, up, up on the balconies, quite literally. And this was like in the 1920s in Mexico, imagine. Was that not 20s? No, this would be now, it would have to be 40s, mm -hmm. the 40s in Mexico, yeah. Yeah, so that was, that's such a rich background. <laughs> and how interesting that through the storytelling, it's sort of, that's how you, uh, I mean, that's how you found your way to depth psychology. Your study of depth psychology was your interest in story. Story and dreams. Mm -hmm. Yeah, story and dreams. When I was in Mexico, I, I did have the, you know, the privilege of studying Mexican mythology. And, um, and, and as I was studying Mexican mythology and ritual and indigenous medicine, um, I was also reading Joseph Campbell, you know, which was actually I'd taken from my father's library, right? Um, yeah, so it just all blended. It was a perfect blend. You know, if, if we think of, again, like I say, the language, you know, uh, dreams and myth as the language of the soul, it just, it just went together because psyche does mean soul. It's one of the meanings of psyche is soul. So it's, it's a psychology of the soul. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, wow. We have traveled. <laughs> we have through traveled the in, our, in our, in our, through our, our, uh, our traveled many miles and through many years and many, uh, many ages and epochs in our little Zoom conversation today. Thank you, Dana. This is great. Thank you. This has been tremendous. It's going to give, I, I think it's really, I, um, I've always been fascinated by the work of Jung and um, I hope that people um, delve into him a bit because I think he has a lot to teach us. I feel like it's, it, it, I feel like it's time has come. I, I think, I think you're right. Uh, you know, the, I, I do too hope that they delve more, but it feels like it. It feels like there's this, but like his time has come. There's this upsurging of interest in, in his work. And the other thing is that um, may people also recognize that every culture has something to offer. Yeah, it can be, you know, the most, the most humble culture or the least technologically advanced culture 
has something to offer just as much as technically advanced civilizations have. That these are all yeah. aspects of our humanness and that they all have value. And, and, and that they're needed right now more than ever as our planet burns and floods and, yeah. you know, it, we need the ancient wisdom now more than ever. And, and, and let's do what we didn't do then. Let's do it right. now. Let's right. create a world based on that celebration of knowledge and differences and cultures and gr grasp the wisdom of our human race because we are one. And that is the hope. I think that is the, um, and the real possibility that things will get better and that things will heal um, is, is that, is the ancient wisdom coming together with modern, modern innovation, that so, these things working together, they are not mutually exclusive. They are things that come together because they're all part of the human story. It's where we were and it's where we're going. Yes. Yeah, well, so be it. I, I, that, is, that is certainly my hope and my prayer, too. Thank you, Sandra. Thank you. Thank you, Dana. This so good. Wonderful. <laughs> Thank you so and much. And that was the wonderful and wondrous and brilliant Dr. Sandra Del Castillo, a dear friend of mine. And it was, as always, so wonderful to catch up. I hope you enjoyed the talk. I hope your curiosity and interest is piqued about the work of Carl Jung. And I hope it gave you a lot of things to think about today. I'm wishing you well, wishing you all good things, and I'll see you on the other side.